Welcome to Policy Pod, PORF podcast. This episode is part of the Raisina Dialogue 2021, India's annual premier conference on geopolitics and geoeconomics. The conference is hosted by ORF in partnership with the Ministry of External Affairs, Government of India. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, dear viewers, we hope you are staying safe in these difficult times. And we are glad that you are joining us today for this panel discussion that forms a part of the Raisina Dialogue, India's premier conference on geoeconomics and geopolitics. This panel is on the topic of a decade of emergence, Europe in the Indo-Pacific. A new grammar of trade, security, and climate cooperation is being devised in the Indo-Pacific. European countries have begun to understand the implications of staying away from this new theater of global politics. And the EU, the European Union, has also recognized it must be a participant in these developments. So in this panel, we are going to address the question of how European countries are developing a strategy for the Indo-Pacific. What are the challenges they face? And what strengths do they bring to the table as partners for countries in the region? So to address this important issue, Team ORF has put together a very distinguished panel we have with us today General Claudio Graziano, Chairman of the European Union Military Committee. Uh, we have Chairman David McAllister, Member of the European Parliament. And we have with us Jens Fröhlich Holter, uh, State Secretary, Minister of Foreign Affairs, Norway. And I am Amrita Nalika, President of the German Institute for Global and Area Studies, and also a non-resident senior fellow at the Observer Research Foundation. And I'll be moderating the discussion. So we've requested our panelists to prepare brief input statements, two to three minutes, to get the ball rolling. So without further ado, let's dive right in. General Claudio Graziano, why don't you start us off um, giving us your perspective on the military strategic issues that are occupying Europe as it turns to the Indo-Pacific. Over to you, General. Thank you, Professor Nalikar. My greeting to all the other panelists and the audience. It's good to be here today and take part in the Regina Dialogue. Let's start saying that I believe that the European Union and its member states have known the geostrategic relevance also under the security point of view or Indo-Pacific for a long time. Now, coming closer, if you take as a reference the European Global Strategy of 2016, the European Union had already acknowledged the direct nexus between internal and external security with the need to address the root cause of instability including security and resilience for state and society. 
ensuring the freedom of common. The threat is that the European Union in the last year has invested most of its emergency, energies in, secu in security and resources in this proximity, and that probably is understandable, and from the Balkan uh, to the Sahel, what I call the southern border of the European Union, passing through the Mediterranean Sea and Libya. For example, as for common security and defense policy, uh, nine of the, out of the 17 CSDP military and uh, civilian uh, mission and operation are run, are run around the African continent or land or on water. Nevertheless, the European Union has never lost sight of its further horizon. We're aware of what we call the butterfly effect, with crises originating far away reverberating on us particularly for threat like, as we speak very much nowadays, cyber hybrids with uh, don't know neither boundaries nor distance. Hence, the decision by the European Union to invest in strategic partnerships with like-minded countries and organizations in the regions, like the Indo-Pacific, from east coast of Africa to the western Pacific island. This is testified by the fact that some of European Union global uh, key partners are there, Japan, India, Vietnam, uh, South Korea, which I recently visited, besides the whole ASEAN, of course. In this regard, we cannot miss the ancient China, which remains an important strategic partner, for example, climate protection and other issues, but also a competitor in trade and technology, and sometimes a systematic rival on issue of governance, values, and multilateralism. So, the real novelty in the European Union is uh, the willing to engage even more in the Indo-Pacific. And that is why, but because of rising tension and growing, growing security concerns, exacerbated also by the pandemic, that is also affecting the security and the, and the defense, with geopolitical competition that could spill over the European continent or affect the Euro European Union global interest. Indeed, the direct engagement by European Union, I think, will bring a more powerful common voice to support international law and rule-based multilateralism and secure Indo-Pacific. Uh, this concern led the uh, member states to request last December an innovative strategic approach to the region, taking stock, and that is important to remember, the unique integrated approach of the European made, made of complete set of tools, and this is the only organization to have all these tools at disposal, that are the diplomatic, the economic, the informative, and also the military one. This strategy, in fact, should include also some reflection on how to make the best use of the military tools and best practices, starting from fostering meal-to-meal relationships, proven very effective throughout history to initiate to facilitate dialogue on other levels. Other initiatives could be enhanced military presence in the region, especially in maritime domain, and that is maybe the most crucial uh, point. As expected, not everything that for part of our CSDP uh, defense and security issue could, could or will be transported to the region, but our experience in several areas of cooperation with partners may be very useful, in my humble opinion, like cybersecurity, migration flow, or crisis management. Now, Savas Andir, a more visible presence in the region will have to be intended not for a confrontation, but for cooperation also in synergy with the United States or a relevant, uh, relevant actor like UK. Uh, last but not least, let me mention that our announced president in the area will have to be supported by a proper communication campaign that will serve also to counterbalance the presence of other actors or strategies may be aiming to diverging objectives. And I stop here for the first part.
Okay. okay. Thank you very much, General. And um, uh, you've gotten us off to a great start by outlining some of the priorities, some of the concerns, some of the interests. Um, may I turn to you, Chairman McAllister? And perhaps you can tell us what are the various political and economic considerations that you have to weigh up against each other as the European Union develops, for example, its strategy paper on the Indo-Pacific. What are the competing goals amongst the member states and also across political, economic, security issue areas? Over to you. Thank you very much for having me here today. It's an honor and it's a pleasure. The Indo-Pacific region, as the General just said, is gaining importance within the external policy of the European Union and its member states. The Indo-Pacific region is the world's largest and most populous region of great political, economic and geostrategic importance for Europe. France, Germany and the Netherlands have now published strategies or guidelines for the Indo-Pacific region, which has stepped up expectations about the forthcoming strategy for the region by the European Union as a whole. I welcome the announcement of the High Representative and Vice President Josep Borrell that the European Union will present its own Indo-Pacific strategy soon, and rightly so. With the ambition of becoming a global player, the European Union cannot simply stay away from the region, but it needs to formulate a credible and comprehensive strategic approach which will guide our actions and increase the EU's relevance in the region. We should set out a common vision for the EU's future Indo-Pacific engagement, and this approach should include a political and economic and a security dimension. As the EU, we want to work closely with our partners and promote fundamental values and principles that we share. As such, we should enhance our relations and cooperation with the key actors in the region, including India, Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, and the United States. And we want to promote the rules-based international order Moreover, our common approach to multilateralism fosters cooperation with the ASEAN partners based on our new strategic partnership. A final remark, in economic terms, the EU is already an active and significant player in the region through many bilateral and multilateral agreements regulating our trade relations. In 2018, the EU concluded free trade agreements with Japan, and with Singapore in 2019, a free trade agreement with Vietnam, and in 2020, uh, the draft is now being concluded for an investment agreement with China. But next in line should really be India, where a trade deal would also unlock the whole potential of the strategic partnership. I'll keep it there as an introductory remark. Terrific. Thank you very much. Um, many, um, many interesting ideas there that I will look forward to following up on with you, including the free trade agreement. And, and I was very happy to hear you talk about values, the importance of values. So perhaps we could talk about that in the next round of questions. Um, so, uh, Staatssekretär um, Holter, 
We've heard two uh, very interesting European perspectives. Uh, we would be very interesting to, interested to hear from you now about Norway's approach to the Indo-Pacific and perhaps also how you see it in relation to the approaches taken by some of the other European players, which Chairman McAllister mentioned. Uh, for example, Germany and France and the Netherlands, perhaps also the UK, no longer a part of the EU, but nevertheless an important actor also in the Indo-Pacific. Over to you, State Secretary. Thank you so much. Uh, it's really a pleasure to, to be with you virtually. I was hoping we could all meet in, in, uh, in New Delhi, but uh, that will be uh, some other year, uh, although we are getting closer to physical meetings again. Um, as you might know, Norway is not a part of the EU. We are a part of the European Economic Area, uh, but we are a, a small uh, European country with a very big uh, global engagement. Um, that will uh, lead us um, to many, many uh, parts of the world, but it, of course, uh, leads to an increased uh, engagement in the uh, Indo-Pacific region. Um, David McAllister talked about the uh, growing importance economically and, and, and with the population growth as well. So over the years, um, the last years, we have seen um, Norwegian uh, foreign policy focus shifting naturally towards the Indo-Pacific region. I will touch a bit upon that later. But from, from Norway's perspective, and um, I'm very strongly echoing uh, David McAllister here, um, a rules-based international order is a, a one of Norway's top priorities. And one part of it is, of course, that it's very much in the interest of a small country to have a rules-based uh, international collaboration. Uh, but secondly, it is also the best way of uh, solving increased tensions, uh, of uh, uh, resolving disputes, and also um, for um, the Indo-Pacific region, when you see um, um, powers that are arising and are ambitious, like, like China, um, the, the best uh, answer to, to have a dialogue around this is the multilateral systems and the, what we have built up uh, for the last uh, decades. Um, and in that sense, uh, we are in a very good position because Norway, um, European countries uh, that was mentioned, and the Indo-Pacific countries really share a common um, commitment to multilateralism uh, and to using multilateral forums to solve disputes and also to have a dialogue. I think that's very, very uh, true now. Uh, Norway was uh, elected to the UN Security Council. Uh, we are now sitting there together with India. The Security Council is the only place in the world where you can make uh, binding, uh, uh, binding resolutions on war and peace and all the big stuff. Um, and we are very happy that we are able to, to work with, with India um, in that council. And I think that shows the, the importance um, India, Norway, and also other countries in the Indo-Pacific, like Vietnam, puts on, on the multilateral um, uh, system. Um, and secondly, we are now, from Norway's side, um, seeing that there's a lot of uh, uh, areas for collaboration that falls naturally and, and leads us naturally to the Indo-Pacific. Um, the ocean uh, is one very important uh, topic in Norway's foreign policy. Norway has always been a big ocean nation. We have the uh, fourth largest, largest merchant fleet uh, in the world. 
uh, during World War II. We were the ones who, who carried uh, supplies uh, to the Allies. We have a very long tradition, um, very long tradition in our merchant navy. We're also now expanding cooperation on ocean management and reducing marine pollution. And whenever we talk about these issues, the, the focus naturally comes to the Indo-Pacific, where we have big uh, ocean states. Uh, we see environmental challenges. Uh, and there's really, really a big, big scope uh, for uh, collaboration. So I think both uh, both the values that we we, uh, we share, uh, Norway and the Indo-Pacific, brings us closer. And a couple with some of the big, big challenges thematically, like ocean health uh, and, and creating jobs as well, um, will lead to a very, very close collaboration also uh, in the future. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at there and we can continue our dialogue. Thank you very much. That's extremely interesting. Let me pick up on the points you've uh, raised, State Secretary, and ask you two questions. So the first one, you know, so you've talked about Norway as a relatively small player, but a very avid and committed multilateralist. And also Norway has been very committed, in fact, to sustainability issues. Right. So my first question to you would be if you could tell us something more on the high-level panel on, the, on uh, the sustainable ocean economy, the blue economy that Norway has led and where Asia, Asian Pacific countries are also founding members, what are the next steps here and what are the challenges ahead? What plans and how, how do you, what are the plans to overcome some of the challenges that you see? That's my first set of questions and I have another one for you on multilateralism, but we come back to this. Over to you. Thank you. The the basic premise here is that, okay, the, the world, uh, we're going to achieve the sustainable development goals. It will require a massive amount of, of uh, increased food production, increased standard of living. And how we're going to get there, we need to harvest and use our oceans uh, wisely. And if we're going to increase the resources that we get out of the ocean, we need to be better stewards uh, of the oceans as well. So uh, the Norwegian Prime Minister, Erna Solberg, uh, she put together uh, and took the initiative to create a high-level panel for the sustainable ocean economy to come up with recommendations on how to get there, how do we get uh, sustainable management of the oceans. And, um, and qu quite naturally, we, we had to uh, find partners in the, in the Pacific region, so uh, Indonesia, um, uh, Japan and, uh, and Palau is also members of the panel. Um, Last December, they came came up with uh, the recommendations, and you know the the re report, which was it was um, um, created through a long process, including uh, academics and and civil society and also business leaders, um, came up with a very strong conclusion that it is able to multiply uh, what we harvest from the uh, uh, from the ocean by many times. For instance, we can get six times more fish from the ocean. Uh, without depleting our fish stocks, but it it requires sound management. So it's really a call uh, call to action for sound management, but it also requires uh, collaboration across borders since the ocean is <laughs> interconnected, uh, as we uh, as we try to say. But uh, yeah, you know, you see in the Indo-Pacific uh, there is a really um, really a huge potential to increase um, uh, harvesting of ocean resources, and that's uh, you know the the panel is really um, it's putting it on a silver plate the possibilities that 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 exists okay that's that's very interesting um let me quickly follow up uh, on the on the issue of multilateralism and then i would like to raise the same issue with uh, uh david McAllister. uh 
And that issue is you both emphasized quite a lot on values and principles and commitment to multilateralism. Now, the, the problem seems to be that I, it's difficult to find any state which says it's not a multilateralist. Multilateralism is a little bit like motherhood and apple pie. Right. So how do you get multilateralism working meaningfully again? Um, and this is we're not this, I know we can have a whole panel discussion on this, but maybe if you were to look a little bit at the Indo-Pacific and say how you think values can come in and how that could help reinforce commitment to multilateralism more generally, that would be very interesting. So maybe why don't you start first, a state secretary, and then David McAllister can come in on that too, if he if he wishes. Yeah. It is uh, well. It's a very hard question, <laughs> and that's that's really how do you separate the true multilateralists from the <laughs> not so true ones? Uh, well, I think I think first of all, uh, what we've seen with the change of administration in the U.S. is a very you know appropriate example of how do you judge. Uh, judge someone. Um, I think you see now that the Biden administration is very committed, and that's a really strong sign. Uh, and I think uh, countries that really stand up for multilateralism will have to uh, will have to dare to confront uh, those who are uh, merely, you know, um, not uh, being true multilateralists. And, and just reading by the book, uh, which I, I hope now with the new U.S. administration, there will be a larger space in multilateral organizations. To, um, to pick up the mantle and, and, and promote true multilateralism. And secondly, multilateralism needs to show results. It needs to show that we are solving people's problems. Uh, just to quickly go back to the oceans again, since <laughs> Norway loves the oceans, we are working to get a global agreement, a global treaty to reduce plastic pollution. A lot of countries are, are, are interested in doing so, and I think we might actually get there. The EU is doing a great job uh, promoting this uh, treaty. We have cross Across um, cross regional support from a lot of lot of all the regions in the world, uh, if we're able to get that treaty, a multilateral solution to a huge problem, plastics, which everyone in the world can see, every you know, you, everyone sees the littered beaches and 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 say we need to stop this. So uh, a treaty, even though it's quite you know, a treaty is always very high, high up there, maybe not too specific, but it actually shows that the global community through multilateral channels. In this case, uh, United Nations and Environmental Assembly can come together to solve something that that people uh, react to or want to have solved. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to Policy Pod, the ORF podcast. Please subscribe to our channel for updates on upcoming episodes.